going to read a little bit from the first of the 15th chapter of Luke, just to get a little bit of context. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then moving forward to verse 11. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the wealth that will belong to me. So he divided his assets between them. And a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant region. And there he squandered his wealth and dissolute living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that region and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that region who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But when he was still far off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion, and he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the robe, the best one, and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field and as he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. And so he called over one of the slaves and asked what was going on. The slave replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. 
So welcome to this latest sermon installment of Who is My Neighbor? And we have some parable doozies to unpack this morning. It reminds me of that sports commentator, Keith Jackson, who used to say, whoa, Nelly, when something really exciting would happen on the football field. Like that went through my head every time I started working with these parables. The prodigal son is actually the third in a series that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15. And as I was preparing this sermon, I found that there were so many tie-ins between the one of the lost sheep that I read at the beginning and the parable of the prodigal son that I just had to include them both. And not that the middle one about the widow finding a coin isn't important, but the Holy Spirit just wasn't bugging me as much about that one. Last week, toward the end of the sermon, Dave said something like, our current religious practices often aren't about admitting our hunger for God, but can be more about neatness and looking like we have it all together. Ouch. I know I'm probably guilty of this. (laughs) But the good news is that there are always multiple invitations to change and grow in the Christian faith. And I think Jesus is profoundly interested in and may even have a preference for people who admit they don't have it all together like the sinners and the tax collectors the Pharisees are complaining about. I think Jesus cares the most about offering invitations to belonging. I think it's what he cares about most, and I think this is a cool way to think about neighbor. Like who belongs to me and who do I belong to? And do we really, every single one of us, belong to God? And what does that mean for how we live together? We'll start with the prodigal son. Ah, families. (laughs) No matter what you call this parable, the prodigal son, the parable of the gracious father, or the man with two sons, I think we can all agree that this family and all of the members of it are messed up. Previous to this passage in Luke, Jesus has told two parables about something lost, a sheep and a coin. Both are found after much searching, and then when they're found, there's much rejoicing. And in both of those parables, someone goes looking for the lost thing and then asks others to celebrate with them when they're discovered. Okay, so then we get to the parable of the prodigal son. One of my favorite go-tos when looking at a passage of scripture, especially one that's super familiar, I've talked about this before, it's called The Twible by a woman named Jana Reese. And it's all the chapters of the Bible in 144 characters or less, like each Bible chapter were a tweet. I find it really funny and also impressive. And her take on this passage is, dad welcomes, his prodigal son back home with open arms and no questions asked forever raising parenting standards for the rest of us. <laughs> and you know that I love me some humor in Bible commentary because to me at least it provides a way into a passage, especially when it's actually pretty serious because the stakes for Jesus are really high as he tells this parable. It's his third and final response to the Pharisees who are accusing Jesus of sitting with and eating with people like them. 
And I mentioned before that the previous two before this parable celebrated finding things that were lost, a sheep and a coin. And at first glance, it might be really easy to peg what the lost thing is in this parable. It's the younger son. But with all parables, we have to be careful to not make a quick and easy interpretation. We know that a key element about a parable is that it's a little bit perplexing because it might seem at first glance like it's simple to understand, but there's always a lot more to it. So let's back out and get a little bit of context. Jesus is telling these parables in response to the religious scholars of his day who we learn from Luke chapter 14 have been watching and monitoring Jesus as he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends and breaking the rules. So as we read Luke 15, we have to ask, what does this parable, which focuses on a, I would say a broken family, say about that? Who's lost? Who's the sinner? And is it just one character? And why doesn't anybody go looking? How is this parable surprising and how is it a challenge to the religious scholars? And most importantly, what does it reveal about the character of God and who our neighbor is? Now I'm in the process of designing a wedding service that I'm going to officiate next month. The mother of the bride has been a friend of mine for a really long time. And the bride has used to babysit my kids. So at this point, we're all like family friends. And before we sat down and started hammering out the nuts and bolts of the wedding service, I asked them a question that I ask of every bride and groom. I also ask of it of the next of kin when I'm planning a memorial service. I ask it because there are emotions and families and histories involved in these events. And I assure them that I ask everyone this question and that if it were asked of me, I would have an answer for my own family and I keep their answers confidential. The question is, who or what are you worried about? And then I wait for the answer. Sometimes there isn't an answer until we've met a couple of times because it requires some trust of me on their part. And to be clear, if there were any mention of abuse or unsafety, that's just a totally different situation. But lacking any of that, the most frequent answers when they do come usually involve a relative with substance abuse or divorced parents, or maybe the awkwardness of somebody not being invited, or someone refusing the invitation, or even the design of the invitation themselves and who gets to decide that. <laughs> Sometimes there's concern about who might hijack the open mic for speeches during the reception, and that is outside my scope of officiant, and for that, I give God thanks and praise. <laughs> I don't ask people what they're concerned about because I can control everyone's behavior or assure that everything is going to go right. We talk about any concerns about what they have so that we can craft a worship service that they can be present for and invite God into. Because God is building a new family. And they'll be a neighbor to all who gather, not just on that day, but into the future. I wonder how the younger son would answer if Jesus had asked, who or what are you worried about? 
I think Jesus uses a family in this parable because it's a universal human experience to be part of a family. And often families or people in them or others that we know of are painful or messed up or hurt to some degree. And I find it comforting that Jesus uses a family dynamic, even a painful one for the people in it to say something about God and life in Christ. And he uses it to lift up who he welcomes on the way. So let's dig in and see if we can find the good news in the midst of this huge mess. The younger son asks for his inheritance before his father has died. We don't know why. Did he hate working for the family business? Were there years of family estrangement and fighting? Is he so blinded by his own desire to go out on his own that that's all he can see? And too selfish to recognize that he's basically wishing his father were dead? Now, the hearers of this parable in the Jesus day would know immediately that in the Hebrew Bible, it's often the younger son, contrary to social custom, that turns out to be the more favored one by God. And that leads to some bad brother relationships. Think about Cain and Abel and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Esau and Joseph and his older brothers. Is that what is going on here? Is the father surprised by this request slash insult? Is he a little relieved, to be honest, or ashamed, or both? To grant the son's request, the father would have to liquidate some of his property, which affects not only his financial security, but also that of the older brother. And the father has to deal with his grief or maybe even self-blame for his own child acting this way and the shame of everybody in the village knowing immediately. The older brother loses some of his future inheritance through this property liquidation. And according to one commentator, he's also lost face in the village because he hasn't stepped up to the role that would be expected of him in the Middle East, which is being a mediator between his father and his brother to keep the family unit intact. So in short, no one in this parable is doing the right thing, and it's awful. Things don't go well for the younger son out in the world, and I'm not sure how great things were at home either during this time. But the prodigal son eventually returns ashamed, and the father is thrilled, and the elder son is resentful because this is a parable we have to resist our instinct to tie the ending up in a bow with a celebratory Hollywood soundtrack swelling in the background. There's not a clear happy ending here because the text is kind of open-ended. There's a lot of, how are we gonna live together? <laughs> and to be a neighbor, mending relationship work to do. The younger son was expecting return just as a day laborer. And who knows how he feels about being fully restored to the family and the community, it might've been way easier for him to just kind of slip under the radar. Who knows how it's gonna go between him and his older brother, the elders in the community, or even what chores he's gonna be assigned around the family compound by that older brother. <laughs> the father's thrilled his son is back, but now he's gotta also deal with the elder son's resentment and maybe his own feelings of shame about how his sons are behaving and just because the younger son is back, that doesn't erase the grief over his behavior. 
And the older son is complaining that things aren't going according to the rules of how things should be and what he deserves. And the father should have thrown him and his friends a party. He's stuck in how it should be instead of how it is. And he misses the invitation to healing that might be offered. I think this is the crux of what the parable is about. Jesus cuts through the illusions of how people should be. And instead, he shows how people really are. We can have all the scholarly Bible learning. We can have legal expertise and sociological savvy to create a healthy and just world where everybody belongs and flourishes. But then there's reality. And Jesus is lifting up this reality, saying this family unit, the members of it are broken, period. And not many details are given because they're not the point. The point is that there is some brokenness and Jesus and his way offer healing and redemption. And the word redemption means belonging. That's what Jesus is in the business of doing. In response to the Pharisees grumbling about who he welcomes, this is what he offers. What's lost is found and what has been shattered has a really good shot of being mended. Which makes me think of the first parable in this chapter, the parable of the lost sheep. I recently read a book called Transforming by Austin Hartke. And the book is about his experience as a transgender man and his faith as a Christian and how they intersect for him and for others who share similar journeys. And he interviews many people who have been silenced or even cast out of churches because of their gender identity. And at the very least, most of them have been marginalized, spending an incredible amount of time and effort trying to belong and trying to serve and trying to defend their right to do so in Christian community. I always look for voices from the margins when looking at a scripture passage that's very familiar to me because it helps challenge my assumptions. And I was struck by Austin's take on the parable of the lost sheep, so I'd like to read it. He says, many of us probably heard this story for the first time as children. It's a Sunday school favorite and for good reason. It's incredibly comforting to imagine yourself as the lost sheep riding back on Jesus's shoulders after an exciting but ill-advised adventure. There are times when this story is exactly the gospel message we need. We need to hear that we're worthy of God's love and that God will risk everything to have us back home again. But what if we imagine this story a different way? What if the lost sheep didn't wander away from the safety and goodness of the shepherd? What if it was just trying to escape the cruelty of the flock? Sheep will occasionally pick out a flock member who doesn't fit, maybe because of an injury or a strange marking, and they will chase that individual away. There are times when I think Christians need to see ourselves more in the 99 sheep who stayed put and ask ourselves if we may have been part of the reason that the sheep got lost in the first place. <clears throat> What's at stake for Jesus in this situation, he says, isn't just that one single lost sheep, and it's not just the 99 back home, it's the integrity of the flock as a whole. Saving the main, just the main group or just the individual wouldn't do much good because the flock is more than the sum of its parts. When Jesus goes after that lost sheep, what he's telling the flock, what he's telling us, 
is that as a community, we need each other to be complete. And I would say whether it's a flock of sheep or a painful broken family situation, Jesus sees humanity and all its marvelousnesses and messes and offers healing and redemption. And always, 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 Jesus offers the invitation again and again. He's not so interested in engaging with the religion police about who is the problem. He's concerned about the lost who are found and redeemed. This is his life and death mission because it's what gets him killed. The prodigal parable ends with the father telling the older son, your brother was lost and was found. And we're left wondering how the older brother will respond. Can the older son, can the Pharisees, can the sinners, can the tax collectors accept that God offers open invitation to the lost who might be deemed undeserving? Can they conceive that God is that extravagant, that unfair, at least according to the rules? Can we? Because following Christ isn't about how together we have it. It's about who God is and who we really are. And it's about shifting our worldview so that we're not at the center. When we can do this, we can look at scripture and each other in a different way, especially from the margins God's possibilities open up, which might help us be closer to Jesus. For a couple of years, I worked as an exercise specialist at a physical therapy clinic. And we're not supposed to have favorite patients, but I had a favorite patient who came every Tuesday and Thursday, who was originally from South Africa. And one day, as I'm coaching him through a movement, we were chatting about our weekend and he looked at me and he goes, I went to a funeral over the weekend, and why in the world do you Americans use Psalm 23 for funerals? This guy had absolutely no idea that I was a minister, just a kind-hearted, I hope, American. And I think I said something about how many people find the image of God walking with them through the valley of the shadow helpful. And he told me that during the long fight against apartheid in South Africa, Psalm 23 was the rallying cry. It was a war cry. What was important, what was liberating, what was inspiring about it was that God was the one leading the people in the ways of righteousness, not those in power. It was God's rod and staff that would comfort the people, come what may, and God who would prepare a table for them in the presence of their enemies. That context makes Psalm 23 incredibly subversive, but I'd never thought of it that way before. And again, this is Jesus's point to the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees, and all who hear, let your faith and your beliefs and your easy interpretations of scripture about who's in and who's out be challenged by me. People look for the lost sheep and the lost coin, but nobody goes looking for the younger brother. Maybe it's because everybody in that parable, the two sons and the father are lost to some extent and need to be found. And most importantly, they need to be restored to neighbor, to community. And with that, I kind of imagine Jesus dramatically looking the Pharisees in the eye and kind of doing a proverbial mic drop before he turns and walks away. 
<laughs> right? Can you see it? He had a he had a flair for the dramatic, our Jesus. There is repair to do, there is life together to negotiate, but they get the chance to do it together in new ways. And this is Christ's comfort and challenge. That's how we neighbor. So whether you're a lost sheep or a lost parent or a lost child, God is looking for you. Whether you're part of the flock or a family that is broken, God is looking for you. And Christ extends the invitation to widen that circle to all in the spirit of neighbor. And all of these things we can trust in the name of Christ. Amen.